Who knows their own story? Certainly it makes no sense when we are living in the midst of it. It's all just clamor and confusion. It only becomes a story when we tell it and retell it. Our small, precious recollections that we speak again and again to ourselves or to others. First creating the narrative of our lives and then keeping the story from dissolving into darkness. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 42. 42. I had to look at it again, but then I was, I was able to transition pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, got that got that down pretty well. I don't have anything to say. I, I, like I said last week, all of these numbers kind of blur into each other. Yeah. Numbers do that quite often. Mm-hmm. It's just, you have the one, then the next one happens. Well, yeah, there's like a one, but then one. there's like a two. Yeah. But then in like, After like nine other numbers, those, there's like a 27. It's very crazy. Oh, it was close. It was close. I thought your number 42 and my number 24 like were the, the same movie. Oh. But it's not. But it's close. That's it's very close. That is embarrassing. Now you should wash down your embarrassment with some beer. Yeah, this is the last of the of the pumpkin beers. Even though we have, we have past Halloween. Well, it'll be two, out, yeah. When... Two days. We're, we're, we're still in the pre-Halloween stage. It's two days to Halloween for us, mm-hmm. for you fellas out there in podcast land. It's the past two days. All Hallows Day has even passed. Now you're now it's, for a second. No, it's just now, you got, now you got election day coming up <sighs> if you're in America. Not for me, because oh. I live in a town where we don't have to vote for anything. Isn't that excellent? It is excellent. Cheers to no democracy. Yeah. So this is this Southern is, Tier. Oh, yeah. Pumpkin, Imperial Pumpkin Ale. It is 8.6. It is a pumpkin pie in a glass. Yeah. Which probably good. makes you Where is Southern really Tier excited. from? New York. Oh, yeah. Lakewood, New York. New York yeah. Oh, 8.6. Why? Why do you need such a strong, strong pumpkin ale? Ooh. Ooh. That is all the flavors I don't that? want to. What not, is that? It's nothing. It's like some pumpkin spice. It's how it tastes like. It tastes like a shot. It's yeah. It's so licory. Ooh, that, it's got like that first. That first. It's got nutmeg the, and allspice, kinda, and then it's just and rum. Yeah, then it's just like gin. <laughs> um. Yeah. This is this is rough. Yeah. But hey, after we get through this first one, it won't matter anymore. I guess. I guess it'll only matter to the person that, you know, drinks it out of our fridge as the emergency beer. Like, when there's just no more beer left. It's like, I have this this one. I have this. And so, oh, yeah, I guess I'll drink that. And then it's like, Ugh. Yeah, there was a famous... Sometime next July. And in my parents' house, there was a beer there forever. It was kind of famous in, like, our family. It was a flying dog, and it was a wheat, in-heat wheat, and it is fucking disgusting. 
literally tastes like you cracked open like a can I of say olives. It's disgusting. It's just real weird. No, no, no. But it's yeah. it's something that I'm not going to. Even if I only had one beer left, I would probably go out and get another like another six pack sure. instead of drinking that beer. Yeah, you'd have to be real drunk to make this like your last beer. Yeah. Is it is hanging out like in my, yeah, just, in just my, around there. my thyroid. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think we can transition into this. There isn't much. There's, there's not a lot we didn't there. talk about what we're gonna do first. I'm assuming our first movie is gonna be uh, the one that is more widely available to people. Yeah, so that would be the new Netflix film, Dolomite is my name. All my life, people been telling me no. Brody. Sometimes our dreams just don't come true. A man slam a door in my face. I just find another door. I want the world to know I exist. You can write. This ain't funny. And it ain't no brothers in it either. If I get up in that light with my own movie, I could be everywhere all at once. Let's bring Dolomite to the screen. The actors we hire, you're a bit doughier than them. Doughier? Hey, that's Dermot Martin. I'm offering you a role in my new motion picture. You think you could just walk up here and hire me? No. What if we let you direct? In storytelling, it's always best to write what you know. You ain't nothing to talk about in my personal life. I deal with the nightlife, club owners and mobsters and lots of pimps and kung fu. <laughs> Do you know karate? No, but I'm a fast learner. I can learn how to chop me a motherfucker. Rudy Ray Moore played by Eddie Murphy, is a struggling, uh, up-and-coming singer, celebrity artist in um, 1970s L.A. Uh, he works in a record store, but also um, you know, works in a club. Um, he, you know, introducing, like an MC, yeah. he introducing a, a band. Um, as an MC, uh, he eventually comes up with this character, Dolomite, uh, which is just kind of something he hears from this old homeless man mm -hmm. one day. And, uh, he creates this persona of a very kind of gruff, uh, abrasive, uh, pimp like character. Um, he practices his character in front of, you know, during his MCing and mm -hmm. becomes extremely popular. And from there he begins to, out of his car, release records um, that he sells quickly, eventually is picked up by a record company and finds some underground success. One day with some friends, he goes to see the Walter Matthau, uh, Jack Lemmon, right? Jack Lemmon, mm -hmm. Billy Wilder film, The Front Page, which I've never seen. But looked, it, I get what they mean, but it looked good. Yeah, because we're, we're white, yeah. No, no, but I mean, like, it looked oh, good no, on Oh, no, it screen. did look good, yeah. I mean, I like, that, looks it, like it looks H, funny. That looks like HD old movie. <laughs> um... They are surrounded by people laughing their asses off. They don't find it funny. Mm -hmm. um, it is not a film kind of created for the same, uh, you know, group of people who were into yeah, yeah. Rudy's kind of filmmaking. And so he sets off to make his own movie. He is turned down for financing and has to take an advance on his um, record royalties mm -hmm. uh, and enlists the help of uh, Derville Martin. Uh, played by Wesley Snipes, who is the one kind of known actor, known commodity, who uh, mm -hmm. will also direct this film. Uh, and they, uh, through haphazard group of folks, come together in an abandoned hotel and shoot Dolomite. Mm -hmm. It is um, 
initially rejected by all production companies until good old Chris Rock comes along and <laughs> guides uh, Rudy Ray to, you know, release it one night on his own. The outcry of support is huge. People love the film. And Dimensions Pictures, good old Bob Odenkirk uh, buys the rights to the movie, and it is a wild success. And mm-hmm. Rudy Ray Moore and his friends go on to make numerous films, and he is considered, through his rhyming sort of um, motif in comedy, the godfather of rap, and would go on to have a storied career as this comedian character. Would he? I didn't really know much about Dolomite. Did you know much about Dolomite? I had known of Dolomite. Uh, me too. Yeah, yeah, I knew yeah. of Rudy Ray Moore and stuff like the. I knew him more for the comedy records, though. Mm-hmm. Kind of like being one of those grand godfathers of like the Richard Pryor, yeah. um, Red Fox sort of era of comedy. Um, I didn't know the black exploitation films uh, that well. I knew, I, like, of, I, I knew of Dolomite as like the black exploitation guy. I just assume, I actually hadn't ever seen one of the Dolomite movies. I just assumed they were like Shaft. And they are like <laughs> they're like, they Shaft, are like but, Shaft, except hilarious. You know, made by a Zucker. Yeah, for for white people, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I didn't. It's funny because they are really pushing this hard as um, as an Oscar movie, and specifically Eddie Murphy as like a potential Oscar, not really nominee. I think he sees himself as being able to win. I mean, he's going to host I mean, Saturday Night Live again, which he's like he saw that with, swore he wouldn't do. He saw that with Dreamgirls. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was uh, something happened there. I'm yeah. not sure what happened there, but his own self destruction, I assume. Um, it's fine. Like, it's funny. You know what I was thinking of a lot when I was watching this was um, Rocket Man, because you know how when they're in the, at the Troubadour the first time, and like it's the it's like the moment when Elton John becomes a thing, and then the movie stops and everyone floats and they're playing Crocodile Rock, which it wasn't even written yet, and it's all very like um, pretentious and staged, and there's that moment when he first does the Dolomite character, and that has its own like organic elevation to it, um, where like they don't have to do a trick to make it seem like a really like important moment where like his you know his his, I, his brain kind of catches fire and his career kind of catches fire and everyone kind of you can kind of feel it. There's a difference between Taron Egerton and Eddie Murphy, where Eddie Murphy can just... Eddie Murphy's, like, selling the shit out of this stuff, this material, and it elevates it to, like, a place where... I don't really think in most of the movie it really gets to. It's just a pretty good, pretty funny biopic that has some moments where Eddie Murphy kind of drags it, like, up into something, like, a little bit better. I don't know. What I would. I see. For me, I, I loved it. Um, I, th- I thought it was I really think, funny. I, I I am not. We've talked about this multiple times, and you know, I didn't see Judy. I, I'm struggling, given the reviews, to go see like something like Harriet because I'm not in the a biopic person. Um, and to me, Eddie Murphy, um, Devon Joy Randolph, and Wesley Snipes is like pure amount of charisma, and well, Craig yeah. Craig Buer's ability to kind of like let his actors be charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, like I love hustle and flow and I really enjoy like black snake moan. Cause like all those movies kind of rest just in the charisma of their leads. Mm-hmm. Like you let the people like do the shit. Um, 
you know, Jeremy B. Henson and, and Terrence Howard and Hustle and Flow just work so well off of each other. And even mm-hmm. like Christina Ricci and, and Samuel Jackson especially are so great off of each other. And it, so to me, what kind of elevates this is just the fact that everyone feels like they're naturally interacting with one another. There is a sense of authenticity to that and that it creates this like really kinetic energy that makes it an enjoyable ride. I watched this twice. One time I was pretty buzzed, the second time earlier today, and both times I found myself <laughs> really enjoying it. And I, I kind of had to rewatch it just because I didn't know if I was kind of like swayed by my state of mind. But yeah. no, it's, it's a really good ride. I mean, it kind of doles out in the end when Bob Odenkirk's character comes along and it's kind of like the production. There's kind of that hammy ending there. Um, or like one of the last scenes where he's talking to that young kid. Yeah. It could be whatever you want to be. And it's like, that's, fu- that's always going to be in these biopics and it's kind of annoying, but the entire ride to get there was just super enjoyable. And I, I'm actually on board the entire idea of Eddie Murphy being in contention for this. He, I typically don't like a lot of what Eddie Murphy does in his roles, like post like Bowfinger era. Well, um, yeah. But to me, like he's so, really energetic in this and there's just a, a kind of affability that well that's is really enjoyable i mean his ch- it's he he has a he has a charisma that most people don't have that most movie performers don't have you know what i mean and it's um this movie is based is that is the foundation on which this whole enterprise rests i liked it i mean i definitely i don't actually don't have anything really to say about it except for some of those script moments where like they make him say something aspirational when like yeah. you, re- you really don't need him to say anything aspirational like we get it was i mean his Rudy entire more really is aspirational exactly like just kind of just let let it just be what it is don't try to turn it and that's the thing the problem with like the, i think that's going to be that's i think i think that's going to be the problem with the harriet movie where anytime they um have Harriet Tubman, in just from the trailer, she says all the very traditional like anti-slavery things um, that have been in every slave movie ever since the beginning of time. Like I would rather die than be a slave. Yeah, we know. Look, we all understand. I, you, you don't have to have Harriet Tubman say that. Um, but I mean, I think that's so. Eddie Murphy's fine. I would not be. I, I would support him being nominated for it. Um, I all I en- encourage all Oscar voters who listen to this podcast to really think hard about Wesley Snipes for a supporting actor because he is fucking great in this movie. He I is. love Wesley Snipes. He is. There's times though where he kind of overextends the his like um, vocal like like play mm-hmm. like I, I, to say like like the, his his accent kind of like becomes um, really affected. Uh, and, it, and it kind of draws me out. Um, it's really, slim. but I think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be. I, he's supposed to have like be a very affected person. It seems like. Oh no, I do. I agree. But um, it's just, I don't know. There was there. I, I really enjoy him. I like everyone in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was like com- comparing him with what like Murphy's doing. He kind of to me falls a bit. Down. But you know what's weird is I feel like you've seen Eddie Murphy do all this stuff before, like in like we you know we talked about Bowfinger before we went on to record and I think like I Bowfinger almost made me list. I love Bowfinger, but I think Bowfinger he hits a lot of um, they're less subtle I guess, but they're also more convincing notes. Um, 
and and it, he's more consistent throughout it. And maybe that's because he's playing two different characters, so you only get like two, you only get like shorter bursts of each character. Um, I don't know. I just I thought he was. I didn't like he was making faces that Eddie Murphy makes, and he was saying things in a way that Eddie Murphy says stuff. And I wanted to. I went into it thinking I was going to get something really significant, and I just ended up getting like a really good Eddie Murphy performance. And it made me like a little. I was like bummed out a little bit, hmm. a little bummed that I it didn't it didn't go all the way. It didn't go to all the places I felt like I wanted it to go. And maybe maybe I didn't you feel can. like a necessity there. I didn't feel a necessity for it to go in hard. Like I felt that Eddie Murphy's kind of energy um, naturally kind of kind of played into what that role would be. And you know, watching like the Dolomite clips at the end. I didn't I didn't sit down and actually watch Dolomite or you know. I've heard some of the Rudy Ray Moore like comedy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's not really doing a direct translation of that, but it's no. it's it's in his own way, and I think that works incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like it's it's it it's, is it's a really you will not one. be you will not ha- feel like you wasted your time. If the you one watch. the one thing I want to ask, I to me we've talked about this um, the money thrown to we talked about this what last week yeah with throwing money to a director and just saying do your shit mm-hmm. um i don't know if this was a netflix initial production i think it was um like this was you know something that netflix created they didn't buy i think because eddie murphy um, has a deal with netflix i think his i think he has a comedy special coming out on netflix yeah netflix produced year. and distributed um this doesn't have that to me this doesn't have that same sort of effect that the netflix kind of carte blanche no. typically does well it's funny because you mentioned that before and i i didn't think it looked necessarily like um a, a, a movie that you had to see on screen no but absolutely not. it definitely there was no there's no fat here there's no and all these netflix movies usually suffer from some kind of excess and this movie didn't have any no, of it that feels, excess. it feels like a continuation of like craig brewer's like filmography mm-hmm. like it, if you told me that this was released in theaters after hustle and flow and black snake moan um and i guess footloose never saw the footloose remake no. did, um i would i would absolutely believe it because it does feel like it's obviously not a movie you'd have to see in theaters mm-hmm. um it's it's just not that kind of picture but it does feel like a normal film it doesn't have that like you said the excess it's it's still a, a sub two-hour film it's somebody looked goes, at it yeah and exactly. they and they and they made a note, and they it looks like it was cared about, other than like just put it. Just it actually get it feels out like there. it has some sort of oversight, and I don't know, yeah. like um, maybe it you know probably probably doesn't, and maybe that's just like a sign of that that Craig Brewer knows maybe his, his wheelhouse and is kind of like sticking in there. But also maybe Eddie Murphy was just like, I want this to be good. I don't want people to come out and say like this suffers from all the traditional Netflix garbage, which is like yeah. it has an extra. You and know, that twenty five minutes and... reflect badly on Eddie Murphy, who's already kind of like still trying to dig himself out of that hole. He thought he kind of could have done that Dream Girls, and then what? I think Norbit's no Norbit was the same year as Dream. I think Norbit was the thing that maybe. <laughs> well, apparently um, I had some like personal life stuff. The the Dream Girls year that yeah. the the rumor is that, that it affected him, but I don't know why Academy Awards would care. No, but, I mean, well, I to be know. fair, there's still these there's still the arguments that. Some of like Mickey Rourke's dealings with like WWE affected his thing with the wrestler, which I don't necessarily believe because I think Sean Penn was 
extremely better that year. Even though I like Mickey Rourke a lot, I still thought Sean Penn was amazing. No, and I actually think that's a really good. Um, I think that's a good year to look at for this year too. Like I'm not sure if Joaquin Phoenix ends up getting nominated for it for Joker. I'm not sure Academy voters are going to be comfortable giving it to him. I think in the, the same way that I don't think they were comfortable giving it, like giving Mickey Rourke an Oscar. I think the solid consensus right now is that it's drivers to lose though. For Marriage, marriage story. story, yeah. Which we'll see. Hasn't come out here yet. We will see. Comes out in two weeks here. So for someone, I mean, on Netflix. So it's, you know, well, no, it comes out here in theaters. Oh, I'm gonna ignore it. I'm just gonna watch it yeah. <laughs> on Netflix. I have too That's many other things to watch. Yeah. Um, someone who should get nominated, but probably won't get nominated. Should probably get nominated twice. <laughs> probably won't get nominated. And someone else who might also is in like a million movies this year. It seems like. Um, we're talking about Mario, the big new release this week for you and me. We've been not for New Haven. Fucking waiting for it. Not for New Haven. For it's other... finally releasing on yesterday, as you hear this in New Haven. But we had to drive some distance to see this one. Um, but it is Robert Eggers' follow-up to The Witch. A sophomore feature. No, the follow-up. Oh, are you are, you're just like saying that you weren't correct. I wasn't sure if there was like a fi- that was a film term, and I said like the non-film term. It is a sophomore major feature, I guess. Sophomore major feature, The Lighthouse. Tell me, what's a timberman want with being a wiki? Just looking to earn a living, just like any man. Starting new. On the run. Keeping secrets, are you? No, sir. Just spill your beans. Why'd you spill your beans? Why'd you spill your beans, Mario? I don't know, man. Why'd you Why spill your beans? What? Um, what year is this? Oh. The 19th century, oh, right? I, yeah, 19th century. Um... Try to think about how to begin, Mario. Two men are left on a on an island. Two men are, are taking over their shift uh, for the month. The month, a lighthouse that's far out to sea. Uh, it's not a close lighthouse, as we learn, because the money's not as good there. Mm-hmm. Um, Ephraim Winslow, Robert Pattinson is the new man aboard the crew, with Thomas Wake, the old man who's been there for a while, William Defoe. And Ephraim is basically made to do all the grunt work. He can never really get to be up there in the lighthouse, bask in the glow of the light. Instead, he's forced to constantly swab the floor because he didn't clean it well enough. Mm-hmm. He's made to listen to Thomas's farts. <laughs> he's got to paint walls and struggle around and fall to 15 feet. And not kill birds. Yeah, not not kill a seabird. It's a bad it's luck important. to kill a seabird. Yeah. Um, slowly, uh, Ephraim is playing close attention to the rules. He refuses to take up the drink. Um, he somewhat has a sordid past. We know that Thomas maybe possibly has a sordid past. He seems to embellish his history. He has a his former 
assistant, former co-worker, uh, mysteriously died, mm-hmm. went mad, as Thomas says. Um, eventually, they realize upon the time that they're supposed to leave that uh, a storm has come mm-hmm. and they, they can't get off the island. Uh, Ephraim decides to take up the drink. They get drunk together, eventually run out of the alcohol, start drinking oil, I think. It's gasoline. Yeah, gasoline. Mixed with honey. Yeah. Um, and uh, descend into madness. Um, mm-hmm. And things happen. That's Lots it. of things happen. That's it. A wave crashes through the window. Yeah. He breaks way. the mermaid. He tries to throw poop off the cliff and falls back on his face. Good little Big Lebowski there reference. Ugh, um, in his in his like Reddit thing, he was talked about how like Big Lebowski's always like a weird influence on him. And like when I Robert Eggers, yeah. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, when he threw the shit. Yeah, yeah. I just love Pattinson's scream. That <laughs> was good. Um, it what's the aspect ratio on this uh, again? So it's one point one nine to one. Um, so it's a small square. Yeah. So it's a so one to one's a square. Uh, four three is kind of what you see on a television. Um, this is kind of uh, film stock you'd see in the 1920s, yep. uh, especially like Dreyer's Vampire. Mm, yeah, uh, it looked Vampire like a Dreyer movie. Be, yeah. um, what would kind of be most mm-hmm. elemental of that, especially the the consistent fog and consistent kind of um, lack of depth due to the inability to see <clears throat> into the distance. Well, no, I mean, in, it gives a very uh, quintessential feeling of the 1920s. I mean, I feel like I wouldn't mind spending like an hour talking about this movie before we launch into our list, but I, so I'll just like focus on that aspect of it. Those um, establishing shots of the island during the storm and stuff are some of the most remarkable like scenes of film I've ever seen in my life. Um, it is like flat matte black, like that it just bursts with weird light occasionally that doesn't look real. None of it, I mean, all those, none of those establishing shots look real. There's a million shots in this. And I'm not even talking about like the fantastical like madness shots, just like regular shots of things that don't look real, that look like hand drawn. You know what I mean? And the fantastic. Which is something you don't see in, yeah. in movies anymore. And the fantastical kind of shots are just taken directly from like symbolistic paintings. You know, you got Shasha Schneider's like hypnosis is like. 100% that, that image where uh, Pattinson's kind of grabbed and the lights come out of the, the eyes mm-hmm. of, uh, I think it's supposed to be Thomas, you know? Um, and it's like flashing in his face. That's directly out of a late, or, or, I think that's early 20th century, early 20th century okay. German uh, <clears throat> painting. Um, John DeVille's Orpheus is is really clearly shown when the mermaid's kind of underwater. You get that murkiness mm. and that screaming. Like So when you get those moments of madness, they're... 100% lifted from, you know, paintings of an artwork that's kind of of that time mm-hmm. that the aspect ratio is. So it's, mm-hmm. it, even though it's late 19th century, it really feels, it feels like a 1920s feature. Yeah. And it, it feels, feels like a 19, it feels like it's lifted from the art. And I don't know if the John DeVille's from the 1920s, but um, John, De, that, that's 1893. Um, it, but it feels 100% like it's of a, of an error of it's, it feels like a horror film from the 1920s. Well, it just feels like something vaguely, um, and I don't want to say like original in the sense of like theme and concept and like all that stuff, but it feels like an original piece of film, like excavated, like off of an island that had been yeah, like, it, it held feels, there forever and it whatever. It does not, even though you can tell it's it's William Defoe and Robert Pattinson, it does not feel of the time. It no. feels as though it's been authentically pulled from, you know, something 
80, 90 years ago. Okay, Mario. We could we could dance around it all day. What did you think of this movie? I like it. Oh my god. It's it's enjoyable. We are on the we are I don't know what, what the reason you have for what you said is, but we are on the same page. Um, and I was really scared that you were going we were going to be on totally different pages. No, it's so it's it's so carefully built um in, in so many ways. It the, the structure of the acts, I went to go see this with a friend, and we both commented that the structure of acts is so deliberate. The first act kind of flows normally. Yep. The second act, I found myself almost falling asleep. Mm-hmm. And not because it's... What are we it's... considering the second act? The entire second act is is everything before... I would say basically kind of that the turn is is when they when Ethram first gets drunk. Okay. Um, oh, so like kinda... when the storm... Like yeah, at, this... that last night. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, it, it kind of has this, and it, it's a deliberate attempt, it, but it feels as though it kind of like, not pace, but the pace is so kind of steady. Mm-hmm. Like there's moments of, of upturn. There's moments of kind of conflict in there. Yeah. Um, you know, you get that great shot of him killing the seagull. That's amazing. Just, just fucking. It's fucking re- Like reducing it to nothing. Yeah. Um, like it goes on for, it's like the, the perfect art of comedy and that, you know, comedy is starting going too long and then you just keep going yeah and then, it, then it keeps going and it loses comedy again which is actually the point yep. but that entire moment i felt myself kind of yawning a lot and not because i was taken aback or like taken away from it but it just it's supposed to flow i think it's deliberately done so you get an ex a feeling of the time passing of the fact that you feel as though you've been sitting here has long well, as they have been. And, that there's and then that maybe, final act. Maybe more time has passed than, than even they've or said. Tom has like yeah. you know ha- has experienced. Tell me, how long have we been here? Two weeks? Five days? No. Five five weeks. Two, two days. Oh, yeah. All right. Help me to recollect. Um and then that last act just moves at, at a breakneck pace. Um But to me, the thing, and it's it, the shot beautifully. The sound design is is unbelievable. Um, you know, even that opening few minutes. It's I don't think there's really any score there. It's I, hard. To, it's hard I, to, to even tell. It's hard to to you know pull apart where it's score. Whether you're just getting the the kind of like warning sounds from the lighthouse, the that kind of like constant drone that's yeah. driving him mad, um, or if it's actually kind of like a, there, there's a deliberation in there. Um, and in that careful construction, there loses to me a sense of the descent into madness. It, because it's so clean and because it has this attempt to be um, not so much a Lovecraftian tale, but a cosmic horror sure. in a sense, yeah, yeah. Um, just in the sense of, of, of the loss of Sandy and the loss of mm-hmm. understanding, as you know, Thomas even says, you know, I maybe I'm not even real. Maybe you're still wandering in the Canadian wilderness, sort of. You know, you don't know what is real. You don't know what where it is. But because it's so crafted with such precision, with such care, you don't necessarily settle into beside your two your two characters. You you always have this sense of distance. You're always watching a piece of art. Yes. Yeah. 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 And you're never really getting that emotional connection to the characters that comes with a more um, rough sense of, of, of madness cinema. I, I, 
hate to compare it to something like in the mouth of madness, but like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of like sense of what is and what is not real, um, being living very close to one, one character, um, while another character is kind of deliberately antagonizing them. Um, there's the parallels there, but there's such a kind of imperfection that exists in, in, in the mouth of madness or something like an event horizon or films that of the nineties that kind of did the same thing. Any Sam Neill movie from the 1990s, <laughs> um, Jurassic park, uh, <laughs> Jurassic Park pushes all the buttons. <laughs> you know, because it, it feels so carefully crafted, you don't settle in next to your characters. So you get a real intellectual experience, but you don't get an emotional experience. At least that's how that's how, that's, yeah. that's how I came away. From I it. it's funny. So I'm I feel the same way overall. I liked it. I really liked it. Parts this of, is going to pop up in a lot of my like end of. There's going to be a lot of awards yeah. from this though. Parts be, of this movie, I love I think are fucking great but when the movie was over actually not when the movie was over because I thought the ending was really good in the middle of the movie probably around the same part I started to feel like a weird emptiness mm, about no, same. It. And I was and maybe that's like, what that's what maybe like the tired came from for so, me and I, I, my emptiness I really I thought a lot about it um, like I, I don't know I don't know what it's about and I felt this way with The Witch, too, where it seems like on the surface, like Robert Eggers is saying, like, 18th century American settlers are stupid. Oh, that, no, 18th century, that'd be 17th, 17th century. Oh, they're 1600s? 16th or 17th okay. century. Okay. It'd be, be 17th century. Either way. Um, that they're dumb. And in this movie, after I thought about it for a really long time, I was like, is the overarching message here that like people that believe too much in sea tales are dumb like and that's the thing and i and i didn't i felt like i didn't i could want to think that but i felt like he wasn't giving me anything else to think about and it's such a it's for most of it it's such a weird visceral experience that you're just kind of like oh totally long for the ride like i ignored until much later a lot of the annihilation sound design stuff that was happening like in at the end of the movie um because while you're watching it it's just so it's so jarring and strange and and beautiful and scary and you know but afterwards i was like but what was it for like what was the point of that and because i think in the middle we're supposed to get a sense of what is actually happening here what these two guys are actually hoping to get out of um, either maintaining their relationship to the light or gaining um, a relationship to that light. Um, but I think because he's so focused on creating like an art piece that that and that, like you were never really here kind of didn't fall into the same trap while doing the same thing, giving us just like touches, little, little touches of backstory to kind of justify the psychological degradation of this character and here we kind of get that too but it doesn't stick it doesn't stick like they like like lynn ramsey makes it stick you know what i mean and i wonder if that's dave robert eggers's fault and i almost dave eggers robert eggers's fault like as a screenwriter because the witch had the same problems where it didn't like he just kind of 
he threw a bunch of stuff at you and it looked kind of cool and it felt kind of cool for a while, but when it really mattered, you're just like, but what is, what is this? No, what is it saying like from at a current emotional, like a current, you know, geopolitical or whatever standpoint? I don't care about that stuff. Like there's no Trump metaphors here, but just like, what is it? What is actually happening here? I don't, what's it for? What am I supposed to be feeling out of this? Or am I just supposed to be watching it? staring blankly and kind of appreciating like the symmetry or the coloring or or the sound design you know what i mean and it made me it bummed me out and that's the theme of this episode for me with these new movies is that even though this movie still gets like a b plus or an a minus i had all the makings of a really great all-time movie and it just didn't get there and then at the end of the movie it just kind of inserts stuff that is less cool than like the acting you know what I mean? So, like, you know, like, when Pattinson goes on that rant at the end of the movie about, like, the farts and, yeah, like, all... goddamn farts. I mean, and he's um, unfucking believable yeah. in this movie. And Defoe is equally, if not more, unbelievable. But then, I don't know, that, like, when he's holding him down and, like, punching him in the face and, like, he switches, like, characters and he's got, like, and he's got that trident makeup on and then the computer-generated... Like, um, octopus tentacles come out. I was like, that is less cool than the two huge speeches. Just that, that was mind-altering enough, the speeches. Yeah, see, and I think this is my problem. My problem with this is it ends up delving too close to its attempt to be, like, a Greek mythology tale told in, in a modern tale. Like, you get, you know... Um, the foe being kind of like that protist character, that, that kind of like sea god of, sure, sure, of, sure, sure, sure. of the past. And, you know, that entire like the barnacles and everything yeah. on him and, and being the seafarer, the warning tales and whatnot. Um, like you said, when he's got the barnacles or the tentacles, mm-hmm. that, that is like him being the protist. And then, like, the entire thing with, you know, um, Pattinson, like Ephraim, who becomes Thomas, who is, you know, also Thomas, um, being like Prometheus in, mm. in the sense of, of never really knowing his place, having a lot of great, having a tremendous amount of knowledge. Like he yeah, is, yeah, yeah, he yeah. is a pro. We can build off of this, yeah. A, a, a progenit, pro, I don't know, I can't say the word. Um, but he's, when you're reduced to him, you know he's an intelligent man. You know he's an, a firmly grasped man who, who knows his place sort of thing. He knows how to read. He's read the books, but then he, he expects too much of himself. And, you know, from his past when he's killed the person, um, or at least led to the, mm-hmm. the death of the person in the long crew, it's always because he was striving too far, striving for too much. And, you know, he demands to see the light. He demands that kind of like fire. And then you just get to that shot where eventually, you know, he kills Proteus, like kills the Defoe character. Mm-hmm. Um, Goes to the light, sees the light, sees that kind of like the truth of the knowledge, gets the fire, and then falls down the stairs, and the ending shots him having his liver eaten by the seagulls. Which is awesome. It's it's awesome, but it's just like it dwells too much into like mythology, and it dwells too much into like just an intellectual aspect and contemplation of something that should be a simpler tale. Well, yeah, like yeah, it's, yeah. It, it looks and feels so much like a 1920s film. Which feels so good. Which feels great that I want to pull away the layers of the Greek mythology. Yeah. In order to... In in the same way with The Witch. I love The Witch because a lot of what The Witch feels like is a modernization of, um, you know, kind of like 1960s horror or kind of like something like, I don't know, like Possession. um, Which is so simple. Yeah, it's just one set. 
Yeah, and it's it's simple and it's 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 close and it's it's very confined and you just allow your characters to kind of like dwell in their own madness. Yeah. But then it kind of like with and I I don't think the witch the witch is kind of a little more contained um in that it doesn't kind of try to like extend itself too far. Like it definitely takes in like the the New England kind of folklore of the yeah. time. But this just reaches so far and tries to intellectualize itself so far that you remove then the closeness to these characters and like Pattinson and Defoe are doing such good work and being charismatic and building off one another. Defoe's doing such like great, like the gaslighting aspects of it, um, of that character, uh, are just so intensely interesting that, right. that the a 19, I just want to see it just be a 1920s horror. Well, I just, like even a modernization with just like bring in like psychology elements. Like the, the, what do we know of human well, psychology? What do we know of like, the connection of, I don't want to say toxic masculinity, but of two people. No, it's no, not no, toxic no, masculinity no, no, no. at all. That, that's the wrong thing to say. I know a lot of people say, like, this is about toxic masculinity, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not at all. It's, it's just about two people who have strengths and knowledges on different sectors. Like, Pattinson's, like, a really intelligent person who's far too ambitious for his talents at the time, whereas Defoe is kind of a, a commoner idiot sort of thing, but who has extreme talents because of his experiences. And just as back and forth that they have um, in terms of gaslighting or one-upping with each other works as a really good contained horror film, especially if it just looks the way it does and sounds the way it does, that we don't need to then throw on this extra kind of like mythology well, element. There's a huge... and uh, Yeah, yeah. I gave star. myself a gold star. Um, there's a human story here where like going, building off of your point where like Ephraim has... Or Thomas has read so much. He his he. I don't want to say sinned, but he has transgressed, and he has read so much, and he knows so much that maybe he has read that like wikis believe that like the light is sacred, and that the light can kind of like reach it, like understanding the light, being in front of the light can kind of be like a salvationary thing. And you also get the impression that like. Um, Willem Dafoe's Thomas has also transgressed. You know what I mean? He talks about his wife. He talks about, um, you know, all this other stuff. And that maybe he is he is unwilling to give it up because, like, it's his penance. Like, you know, he, he's doing his, his um, you know, he's also find, thinks he's going to find salvation in the light. And he doesn't want to let, like, Thomas into that. And maybe Ephraim has... You know, he's read too many books on things. So, like, maybe, you know, mermaids are on his mind and, like, all this other yeah. stuff. There's a human aspect to that. But then he kind of breaks it to introduce some of those other, like, otherworldly themes that don't really need to be there. And they take you out and of the drama. I think the otherworldly themes kind of, like, fit to an extent. But, like, keep it contained within, like, the sea tales. Like... The fact that Thomas or, or Ephraim's um, intelligence and, and you know learnedness in terms of his reading makes it so he ignores kind of like the superstitions of the mermaids or of killing a seabird, and like his ignoring kind of Thomas's folk tales, mm -hmm. like his inability to remember or to toast. Um, because maybe he regards them as folk tales, yeah, folk and tales he, and nonsense. And Thomas regards them as like law. Yeah, and like the experience that Thomas has in seeing the past, like like you know that 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 
back and forth between experience and knowledge, that in itself is such an interesting movie. Yeah. And like you can still contain it without going big, like without going Greek. And it goes Greek, and it doesn't need to go Greek. It's weird. It, like, it, and again, I it, rating it on grades B plus A minus, rating it on numbers like eight point nine, like nine point one. It just doesn't feel good. It doesn't? Yeah, I mean, except for when it does feel good. But it, like when you're done, you're just kind of like. What? But everything that feels good about it is just an appreciation of the artistry, appreciation yeah. of the performances. Um, like honestly, to be, I will say this about the performances: I wasn't in love with the foe, but I'm also never in love with performances that go like over. See, I was only, and I, I think he's great. Yeah, but like, I'm never gonna like be like sit next to a performance that's fucking crazy. And, and like, I, the foe's fucking great. Like, that two-minute-long, like, the, curse monologue is amazing. amazing. But, like, I actually, that's a personal choice thing. I'm like, be, I felt I'm, like, yeah. I felt like Pattinson, I preferred Pattinson in this. Well, because Pattinson just has this yeah. really strong, realistic descent into to madness. Mm-hmm. Like, it start, he starts in a bad place and just gets worse. Whereas the foe's kind of, this kind of, like... He's, like, stereotype. He's a stereo. Yeah, he's a stereotype, and he's basically a system by which to make Ephraim more crazy. I'm going to be very honest with you, though. Your hope, your dreams that he wins an Academy Award might come true this year because that speech is the kind of things that people love oh, to yeah. give old men Academy Awards for. You know what I mean? I was saying, I was like, oh man, this is definitely if he gets like because I think he'll probably end up getting nominated for this. Like unless Joe Pesci like rattles off like some kind of amazing Goodfellas esque. Like, you know, five minutes in The Irishman, you know, you're going to get yourself some pit and you're going to get yourself, I'm pretty sure, Defoe. And it would not surprise me. Like, talk about the Dream Girls thing. Like, this could be Defoe's, like, Alan Arkin thing, where everybody in the industry sees this one moment and everyone's like, well, Willem Defoe. Yeah. And they just kind of, like, mark it down. And they're like, oh, right, we should have given it to him from Florida Project. Yeah, we should, which would, he would have been a hero then, but. Because they should have got it for Florida Project. He should have got it for Florida Project, yeah. Or Eternity's Gate. Or Eternity's Gate. But yeah, no, I think that's, but that's the thing. Like, I was, I was with it until, like, I knew it was going further. Than it. And it's a mixed, I think it's a problem. It's a mixed metaphor. <laughs> like, it's such, like, a sea-going tale. And then all of a sudden it makes it bigger. It makes it Greek. Like, and I said, like, when it makes it Greek, you, you, that's where you lose me. Because it just becomes too big. Yeah. It becomes it becomes too big and it becomes too conflicted and it becomes muddled. It, it by the end of it, it is um very muddled. I actually think it and can... all the mermaid vaginas in the world, which yeah. I love the fact that you see a mermaid vagina. Yep. All the mermaid vaginas in the world won't help it. Yeah, I mean and that's there's a lot of those scenes where it's just kind of like this is cool. I don't know what it's doing, but like it's cool, I guess. Like it's a good montage of stuff. Um, but I'm not sure to, I'm not sure what the value is. Like in the end, I'm not sure what the value is. And I think it's just stacked up amazing images. And I think we're supposed to, at the, in the I, end, get well, just a bunch of value images. out of it's it. It's amazing images and it's, it's amazing like production overall. Um, like when the score, when Corbin score comes in, it hits cause it just flows perfectly off that sound design. Well, it all sounds image- like, it sounds like the ocean and that horn together. Yeah. Weirdly is music. Yeah. And like, so all that. Like technically, it's 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 masterful, but has and even in terms of of its writing, it's it's incredibly strong. And in terms of its direction, it's strong, and its performances are strong. But it's 
overarching kind of like thematically coming together is where it breaks apart. Mm. And so it's still, like I said, it's, it's like an, it is like an A minus film uh, or like you said, it's an A minus film, but there's just something there that makes it an art piece, makes it like a, a MoMA movie and not a pivotal kind of movie. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if we had seen that Matthew Barney movie that was playing at Yale for a while, I wonder if we would have felt roughly the same way about that that we do about this. That, like, I can see where the art is, but it's not moving me, like, emotionally. Yeah. It's just kind of sitting there. And it's nice. And it's really, in spots, it's amazingly nice. But it, overall, it just kind of is, like, a little vapid. I mean, I don't know. Not vapid. But o- I felt o- the, overreaching from over, overreaching. So, yeah, I mean, I, I saw a lot of parallels with this in The Witch, and I find The Witch to be, like simultaneously very compelling and completely like empty like I, I a find completely it, empty experience i find it fairly empty but i find it wildly much more compelling and i don't know just because it's like there's there's more performances and all of those performances work in the witch for me mm. and it's a less of a reach of a film it's it's trying to take in less like as a global kind of thing it just is a more contained horror film mm-hmm. like it feels like a plansky film it feels like something plansky could have done yeah, but Polanski wouldn't have made a guy. For the witch, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, Polanski wouldn't have... The goat would have stayed a goat. Oh, yeah. No, which is, which is the one gigantic fault of the witch, is that Black Phillip doesn't just stay Black Phillip. Like, if it was a goat saying, well, thou, thou live deliciously, that would have been perfect. Yeah. But... Yeah. We'll never know. All right. We'll be right back with our number 42s. <laughs> Last week, and a lot of weeks recently, we've talked about the period of time in early to mid-high school where I started getting heavily into film and needing to see the films that were highly acclaimed, the, whether they were the historical films, the, the films of the past, the classics, the underground pictures, mm-hmm. just started to get my aura of film. Um, and around that time, too, I started to really look at the Oscars as something where I needed to obsessively see films that were nominated, um, see films that won awards, and and, and felt a need to be a contemporary. Felt mm-hmm. a need to not just wait until after the ceremony, not just give a lot of time, um, not just listen to word of mouth, but be there in the moment so that I could... Be angry <laughs> when the movie win. didn't win, or cheer when a film I liked won. Did that happen a lot? Well, a mix. <laughs> I usually remember the ones I liked, um, and during that time, I started to kind of like change the way in which I saw film. I, I felt it a little more. It's it's interesting. The more I saw films, the more they kind of worked as a gut punch for me. Mm-hmm. In the past, and you know, as a child, the only movie, and this actually doesn't show up on my pivotal list, that really ever punched me in the throat and destroyed me emotionally was Schindler's List. Mm. And it almost doesn't make my pivotal list just because it affected me so much that I've never gone back to it again. Mm-hmm. I've seen it as a, I think, seven-year-old. And that is it. We should do next year. We'll do 
we should do a Schindler's List bonus episode and just spend like an hour talking about Schindler's <laughs> just, List. I just forced it. Because it's not a It's not a new it's list. Not mind. It's roughly for like the same reason. It's just too much. It's too, I, I it's just too hard. can't. I feel like I can't go back to it. I also feel like I owe. I feel, I feel guilty watching it. You know what I mean? It doesn't make you feel... Nothing not I think it, it needs to make you feel good, but it just makes me feel bad. It makes me feel bad in my life. And it's just one of those things that it's, it's hard to kind of touch on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one film in particular had an emotional moment that just ruined me. And it was kind of the beginning of the ruining of Mario in movies, of, of <laughs> moments in movies that would just destroy me. Mm-hmm. And that particular scene is the execution of one of the runts. Oh, man. And the film is Fernando Morales's City of God. Nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay, Rio de Janeiro, The Beach, The Nightlife, the romance but 15 miles from paradise is a place called the city of god a place where one man must infiltrate a war between two crime lords to tell a story the world needs to know well that that says it all that's just the general feeling of city of god right I don't think I have to say anything else. The whole that, trailer, that movie captures that trailer right there captures everything you need to know. The about whole trailer is like that. There's a lot of American music and just don't the you, one guy. One thing I appreciate. Um, this is a quick aside. Don't you like? I was watching when we got to see the lighthouse this week. There was a trailer for Parasite. I was pretty upset because I've been purposely staying away from trailers for Parasite. But you don't know what that movie is from the trailer. Yeah. Um, luckily, yeah, it's like the minute-long trailer. Yeah. But, like, don't you appreciate that the trailer's in the foreign language, and now, like, we're doing that? Like, we're just letting trailers for foreign language films be in the foreign language? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's always good, because just use some music and show the movie. Mm-hmm. But I feel like with this movie, it would be hard... To capture. Because without any context, you have literally no idea what you're looking at. You know what I mean? It's just all jump cuts and, like montages and the overlays and just it's all everything it's so that you can do with the camera yeah. you're doing in this movie so it'd be hard to give a real clear sense of what's happening uh speaking of city of god is based on a favela that they're called favela favela yeah favela in uh rio de janeiro the uh, you know quintessential city of god mm-hmm. um it details the lives of a bunch of Gang members and people attempting to leave the city of God, because really the only two options in this favela are to embrace the crime around you and live a life constantly in fear, or try to escape it, and most of the time fail in doing so. Mm-hmm. Everyone, except for basically one person, yep. uh, fails in their attempt to escape. Um, we're going to talk about this film later in a few months. Um, so I don't, you know, I'll save the big plot description and kind of like the Mm -hmm. in-depth review of that for Ben. I just want to talk about that scene. Mm. Um, I have a lot of, I love this movie. I have a lot of strong feelings about the themes and the ideas of this film. But let's just break down that scene. Um, Yeah, describe like what the scene is. 
Little Z is kind of the the boss of this has been slowly taken over um, the, this town, this 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 villa. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is he is the big muscle. Um, he rules it with an iron fist. He enjoys killing, uh, as we see. He's he, a thirst. For he killing. has a thirst to kill. Um, so he just loves murdering people. He he rules with an, a very iron fist. Um, there is a group of kids who are. And by kids, I, I literally mean small kids. children. Um, four year olds. Five year olds. Yeah, four or five. The one kid's maybe three. I don't, yeah, it's hard to tell. It's hard but... to tell. Um, ch- children who definitely do not understand what this life is, um, who are talking angrily about the bureaucracy that exists with the drug running, about yep. how they're going to have to work their way up and wait for somebody to die or phase out somehow so that they can, you know, go from running drugs to being like the mules or whatever, to being actual leaders. Mm-hmm. And they uh, decide that they're going to, you know, say, screw that and go in the business for themselves. A uh, little Z has just so happened to uh, walk up with his uh, good old buddies. Has he hears these kids say this? Mm-hmm. Uh, he chases the kids off. A bunch of the kids run off. Uh, two of them, do not um he then asks them whether or not they want to be shot in the hand or the foot uh they both say the hand and Lil Z and his love of being a complete cunt um this decides get you, to shoot them in the foot and then makes um, why am I forgetting the character's name Steak right now? Snake fries. Snake fries. Uh, makes him decide to and he's initiate. He's a kid too. Him. Also a kid, maybe eight. Eight nine. Yeah. Eight nine. Like uh, makes him decide to kill one of the two. Uh, what you then get is a three. It feels like three minutes. It's probably only two minute long scene of two small children crying, begging for their life. Um, this is one of the absolute hardest scenes for me to ever like this is the girl in the red dress on top of the pile of bodies for me this was the first time yeah from Schindler's List the first time I'd felt that enraged and that empty and that helpless um we were talking about this as we were setting up the clip it feels like Fernando Marielis didn't tell these two kids that uh they weren't actually going to be murdered um because the acting from those two children feels utterly earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, the little, the littlest one, the one who looks like he may be three, um, seems like he thinks he's going to die. Um, it is the first time in a film where, I mean, outside of Schindler's List, but the first time has a, I watched this when I was 17, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just lost a rector. I still had just come out on like video. Um, that was, did not make me happy when I found out when I see saw this and saw that I'd lost director. Um, well, it was weird that it got. I mean, it got. I mean, I, we just said in the clip it got four Oscar nominations. Yeah, which is amazing. It's not best foreign language film. No. Back in the day, where like they refused to nominate like a major Oscar contender for best foreign language film because the those crews were different in terms yeah. of nominations. Um. It is a a scene that sticks with you forever uh when doing this list 
it is that scene that I think about. When thinking about the scenes that are utter punches straight to the heart that ruin you, it is that scene. And mm-hmm. this, this is a film that is chock full of, of, of desperation, of the futile attempts to, to climb out of the favela lifestyle, to climb out of crime. But it is the reduction of all of those emotions, of the 130 minutes of, of that feeling mm-hmm. in these three minutes. It mm-hmm. is perfect emotional cinema. Well, and it's great because it's kind of, a, it's not like a turning point in the movie, but it comes after a turning point in the movie and it cements It is that... a scene. Yeah, right. It's just a scene. Exactly. And it and it cements... Um... It's not even a scene to show you Lil Z's a bad guy. Because you already no, know. because you already know he's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that he has literally no redeeming qualities. So, like, the fact that he's doing it is of... It's not a surprise. It's not It's not even really interesting. You know what I mean? Um, because he's been talking about it the whole time. He's been saying, like, you know, he told the guy that's kind of... Um, who the, the runs kind of operate in this very specific zone. And he's... But sometimes they go outside of the zone. And Little Z is telling the guy that runs that zone to, like, tell the runs not to come in my zone. And that's earlier in the movie before... All the really, te- I mean, terrible shit happens early in the movie, but all the really terrible shit happens after those conversations happen. This scene happens after that; those conversations happen. It's all set up. When the scene starts, you know what's going to happen. But it's the really weird and, like, magical and horrible thing about this movie is that bef- between those two, between that, or that moment, that scene sits between like several long montages of violence and you know people issuing guns and like all this other stuff um and it's like how just how you said it like cements the nature of what this life is really like and it cements the nature of it cements that the it confirms the symbolism that's kind of running throughout the thing, which is that you can't get out of here. Yeah, and like the scene serves a, a fundamental purpose in the yeah. end, but um, the runs in the end kill Z yeah, in, in retaliation. It has narrative value, value, but it's also thematically very significant because it's the one, but it's also, it's so sick, but like, I guess in a good way, but also in a bad way in that like, before before and after that, they don't sit and linger over the death. And, or they do. They sit and linger over the bodies, but they don't sit and linger over like how those bodies were made. And it's this one scene with these two little kids where he's just like, "This is fun for me. I'm gonna drag this out and make another kid kill two kids." And it, and it, and it shows like the status of of human has meat. Mm. And this movie kind of does that repeatedly. Um, and you know, it does that like that that people are just gunned down for no real reason than just they're in this place, this place where God has abandoned, as they say. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's like that, that definition of, even though like they're, they're a gang, like a little building up gang, mm-hmm. um, even though the runs kind of show the same ruthlessness later on, mm-hmm. um, it is two very small children who do not understand the depth of what they're doing. It is, it is that distillation of, of, of innocence um, but saying once again that that doesn't matter. They are also just bags of meat meant to 
be killed without without thought, without compassion. Well, that it just is a thing that happens day to day in this right. life. Right, and if you, I mean, which as we see later, like if you, if he doesn't, because he didn't kill all of them, they killed him. It's from the top to the bottom of that society. It's literally kill or be killed. Yeah, it's a, and it's a cycle, a cycle, a worsening cycle that yes, you you do not. You do not disrupt the wheel. You do not break the axle. You just hope that you're the one of a thousand pieces of it that fly off and well, escape. I mean, I think that's the real beauty of the character of Rocket is that he doesn't disrupt it either. He's just documenting it. Mm. To a certain extent, literally all you can do is document it for future reference. And it great, he creates value for himself. Yeah. And like he doesn't just try to escape it. To get, he doesn't just try to leave he he realizes the necessity to that the world around them, you know, the world outside the city of God doesn't want them. Doesn't unless you give them something. And but, he, he's the one person that can offer some sort of value through his documentation that, of this world. But to that end, the inside of the city of God doesn't inside the flavella. They don't want them there either. Hmm. Like it wants to, and it does for a while. It, it does like that slum exists. Why do you drink this pumpkin anymore? It just tastes like carrot cake. It's just gross. Disgusting. I don't like it. Yeah. Unfortunate. I'm, I'm glad that we're moving away from the pumpkins. Yeah. Um, now we're going to non-alcoholic beers yeah. for a month. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's a masterpiece, but it's, it's because it works on like all of these different levels. And the kids scene just kind of shows they're even younger than Rocket and Little Dice were when like the movie started. Or Little Z, as he's known, you know, as the movie goes on, um, they're younger than that, and but those kids weren't even when the movie starts. They weren't like intimately involved with crime. It almost seems like these kids are literally born and they just walk out of the womb with a revolver in their hand or with the inclination to rob a candy store bakery. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, Unless that girl's cute. She's, if you're foxy, you won't get robbed. That's true. That's true. But that's... that's well, it's also the show that the, the, the rocket is somewhat queen of it. Like, mm-hmm. he, he is unable to morally degrade himself. But he's also... He's, yeah, he's doing his... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, that's something we'll talk about. Like, we're doing a short conversation on this just because I think it's... it's a City of God's important to discuss in those fragments. Um because it is it's so fragmented as a feature um everything works together to tell this kind of tell this tale but it's it is told in a very i don't want to say it's it's not quite it's not doesn't remind you of goodfellas or anything like that it actually Um, reminds me of pulp fiction yeah pulp fiction uh is is very similar to that but it is narratively straight lined in a lot of ways um in contrast to to Pulp Fiction, the fact that it's all building towards one single sort of idea, yeah, um, it's the, but it's the excitement of making a film on film, yeah, exactly. And it's a terrible film, but it's like you know thematically and and, and content wise, it's but. a film. It's a film that has those horrible moments one after another, yeah. Um, from Shaggy, you know, being shot like it starts out kind of like that's sad um, to Ned's like brother. And his uncle being murdered—that that's horrific. Or mm-hmm. Benny, who's who's tried to keep his hands clean, has sold drugs, but has been, as they say, like we're really just hippies. His murder over just a camera um, in a film of horrific scenes 
and and the constant horror of the world around you, um, this, you know, the, the runt murder is just one of the most horrific scenes you could see in film. And it, it just, it, it is, like I said, the, the thesis of this feature. It's, mm. it's hard to, to see a lot of films that, that can so soundly and masterfully underscore the entire point of the film in two minutes. And that does, you know, but in the, the, I mean, the, in the masterful thing about it is that it's, it keeps being exciting like even when that scene is happening, it doesn't bog it down so much that like you kind of can't watch it anymore. Yeah, yeah. It keeps its it it keeps its aesthetic fully realized during that scene. It's not selling out to shock you. No, because it even, it even it's keeps in context. It's all and in even context. Like the reactions, the subtle reactions to like Lil Z's compatriots around him are like, what the fuck? Like yeah. you can even see on some of their faces, like that's too far mm-hmm. so it keeps like that that idea of there still being some sort of purity or godliness within the potential of the people yeah um and just whether or not they turn away from that and that you mm-hmm. know the dilemma that each person faces and that's you know just like i said distilled back to this is stakes the dilemma his moment to go one or the other way and like most people almost all people in this film he goes the way by which he just repeats the cycle forever. Mm-hmm. We will talk about this movie exhaustively. Um, it might be a, it might be a double episode when we get to it. Um, yeah, I don't know what your twenty-eight is. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, I just ruined it. I just ruined it. My number twenty-eight probably doesn't need an episode, but um, we'll do it. We'll do it anyway. We could almost. Uh, but yeah, so City of God, that 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 run scene hard. It's a hard one. But it's. I mean, it is it is a worthwhile watch. I mean, you're oh, not gonna yeah. feel you're gonna feel bad about yourself by the end of the movie, but you're also gonna say, "Holy fucking shit, that was one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life." Show enough. Exactly. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back with uh, my number forty-two. Uh, welcome back. Uh, so last week I mentioned Nick Cave when we were talking about Wings of Desire, and I said that this is going to kind of be like a Nick Cave block, and that is 100% true. Um, so my number 42 is like an actual Nick Cave movie. It's kind of a doc, like documentary. It's a drama. It's written. It's you know improvised. It's got performance footage in it. It's got studio performance footage in it. It's got montages and sound design and a score and all kinds of crazy stuff. It is um, the 2014 film 2000 Days on Earth. What do you fear the most? It does worry me that I'm not going to be able to continue to do what I do and reach a place that I'm satisfied with. In a sense. Because memory is what we are. Your very soul and your very reason to be alive is tied up in memory. Those moments when the gears of the heart really change. Um, just a couple of, you know, so we'll do some some details first. Um, it was directed by Ian Forsyth and Jane Pollard. Um, it was I think re- their only feature, right? Um, yeah, they were like, a, uh, they're like art film people they're visual artists more so than they are documentary filmmakers or dramatic oh, okay. filmmakers um it was written by forsyth pollard and nick cave uh warren ellis who is in the bad seeds and who is a collaborator with nick cave on um a lot of film scores um 
did the music. The cinematography um, was by Eric Wilson, who did both the Paddington Bear movies, like the new ones, and the new Dark Crystal, like Netflix show. I've heard really good things. So about he's that. a really he's like a person. You know what I mean? He's not just a guy with a camera that's shooting stuff. He's a real guy. Um, it won. It was nominated for a BAFTA for best documentary. It was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for best documentary. It showed at Sundance. Basically, what I'm saying here is that it's not just kind of like a vanity concert film project thing. Oh, it's like a real all. movie. Um, and I'm going to start really kind of by not... I'm going to start my conversation a little bit by not talking directly about Nick Cave, and then I'm going to get there. So my two favorite... Because this is the last time we're going to talk about Nick Cave. That's you know fair. what I mean? Uh, we talked about him we talked about a three times bunch already. of times. I, Four, I mentioned... I think I mentioned Red Right Hand during my Scream conversation. Boom! I'm going to put the bell in there. Um... My two favorite bands of all time, based on like the amount of time I've spent listening to them and thinking about them and the amount of money I've spent on seeing them and like buying their shit, is Pearl Jam and the Black Crows. Like, hands down, Pearl Jam and the Black Crows, that's my two favorite bands. Probably the next two on my list, based on like, you know, measurable criteria, is gonna be Elvis Costello and Nick Cave. Um in my early twenties. I literally didn't listen to anything other than Elvis Costello and Nick Cave. I was one of the losers who waited outside of Best Buy alone for a Best Buy to open so I could pick up double-disc CD reissues of Elvis Costello records. And I would, me and my friend would drive to Waterbury um, to the store called Phoenix Records that had like old bootlegs and, you know, European releases and all this stuff. And we would buy, you know, Nick Cave um, concert videos, like on video, you know what I mean? Cause this is the, this is the early two thousands. Um, so video was still a reasonable way to watch something. And YouTube wasn't, I don't even, was YouTube even, did it exist in 2000, 2001? No, 2002? 2005 is when it launched. So there you go. So like, this is how, if you wanted to see Nick Cave in concert and you couldn't go see him, you had to get a video. You know what I mean? You had to do it. Yeah, streaming a video to even become a thing. Like, nope. Streaming video was early. Like, I think Daily Motion maybe was out earlier. I don't even. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. So if it did exist, I didn't know what it was. But these, you know, people, people that are listening Nick Cave to this, was not on. No, I assume Daily Motion. You know, if we got a Nick Cave, when we got a Nick Cave video, it was with a, it was a bootleg. It was with a photocopied cover slid into a, like a hard plastic sleeve that you had to like press and like shake the video out. You know what I mean? One of those. Um... So that's that was me, um, as 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 a kid, and like my love of Nick Cave was like so deep that like I listened to all the ancillary stuff. So like this guy that Blixa Bargeld, who's in this who's in this movie, he's one of the guys in the car. He was in this German noise rock band called Unterstein Neubaten. And I'm definitely mispronounced that. But they used to play like use saws for instruments and stuff, and we would we would like mail order like records from them and like you know we drew the logo they have like a logo with like a it's like a bone and like uh henry rollins has one tattooed on him and we like would draw that on stuff we were just so invested in like nick cave as a as a guy um but so like pearl jam and the black crows are kind of like out they're just like they're like weirdly foundational. You know, like your favorite thing as like a kid, just you just kind of carried on doing that like forever. Um, so like 
I don't even really think about Pearl Jam and the Black Crows anymore. I'm vaguely interested in them. I kind of listen to them, but I don't dig into their music. Oh, wrestling. Wrestling for me. There you go. So it's so one of those things. I don't really dig into Elvis Costello's music anymore because I don't think it's for everybody. It's too pretentious. It's too, like, considered. You know what I mean? There's not enough soul in it. And besides, like, a couple of albums, and I feel like I've talked about Elvis Costello on this podcast, besides a couple of albums, they don't... Him, Elvis Costello, is like an idea. Like, doesn't really sit with me anymore because I don't have anything to do with it. You know what I mean? He's playing chords. I can't play these chords that he's playing. He's like got two hands. He's like using his thumb and like the bottom two fingers to play crazy chords. I'm not. I don't know what that means. You know what I mean? I don't get that. Um, I definitely don't get that. But there's something about Nick Cave, and where I think about him all the time. And this is before I even got this record, where each record Nick Cave would put out, I admit, I don't know how, so, it'll be, I guess a little bit here. Movies for, I'm doing a movie, we're having a movie podcast right now, we've been doing this forever. What? We post, <laughs> this is going to be the 75th episode of this that we've posted. This is a movie podcast? It is a movie podcast. Movies are my number three thing. Just, it just, it's like a basic fact in my life. It's music, books, and then movies. I love movies. I fucking love them. Movies are my number one. That's guys. what I'm saying. So, so listen to this guy. But you know first. what? I, but this is what I'm saying. Is that like then books? Then then probably wrestling. Music. I don't worry about figuring out how movies work. You know what I mean? I don't really care how they got those those establishing shots in the lighthouse. I don't really give a shit. Um, you're, you're, I with just, the, you're with the one concerned about the aspect ratio like I was right, and exactly. why they chose the aspect well, ratio. I, the, my one concern about the aspect ratio was I should have sat closer. That was my one concern about the aspect ratio. But um, I don't care. I just I accept it. And if I can know it, then I'll know it. But I just want to – it moves me in a way like a, like a visual art. Music, though, I tend to get more into the music when I can figure out how the music works. I've never not been able to figure out how a Nick Cave record works. The chords are major. The piano riffs are slow. You know what I mean? I can, I'm, I've been playing music forever. I can figure... I, I don't, but I, I can follow. But I can figure this stuff out. And yeah. So it's, it's like burrowing, in, like in the same way that you would burrow into a movie. You know what I mean? I can burrow into like or a... Or a professional wrestling movie. Or a, prof- <laughs> or a professional... Or like a match. You're yeah. sitting, oh, because you have to do that, and they're going to make this choice, and blah, blah, blah. And I could see that with Nick Cave, and that's that's one of the aspects of Nick Cave that kind of, I think, has, has like, kept him around me. Like, I've wrapped him around me for a long time. But this movie, I think, put it on a different level. And where I realize that him and me, we're not, like, we're not... Obviously, we're not friends. I don't know him. I've never met him. I've seen him in concert three times. Whatever. But Is he a good live show? Yeah, oh, it's an amazing live show. Amazing. Um, you know when you find the person who kind of thinks like along the same lines as you do, they articulate something in the way that you kind of didn't realize that like it could be articulated? And that's what I found in this movie. Cormac McCarthy for me. Who is it? Cormac McCarthy for me. There you go. And we'll, we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that in time. Um, when I think about Nick Cave now, and I think about like my relationship to this movie and his relationship to this movie, I don't necessarily think about the movie. So the movie, we've said, is like a documentary drama. It's both staged and improvised. 
There is moments where he's having an actual conversation with a psychiatrist. He's having an actual conversation with people that are going through his archives. And there's uh, voiceover moments that he has written, like along with with um, Forsyth and Pollard. And he's delivering them while they are filming him just kind of doing thematically interesting stuff. There's conversations in cars between him and Ray Winstone. And <laughs> I love that one. It's That's great. One. And Blixa Bargeld, who's in his band, and Kylie Minogue, who he reformed a song with. Um, off uh, murder ballads and um, it's kind of it's like and there's also like this like studio performances because it's it coincided with the release of um, his record Push the Skyway um, which is a great record it's all those things but when I think about this movie and how it fits into my life I think about it in the same way that he thinks about those locks of hair like on his on his wall you know what I mean? Or the way he thinks about, um, you know, memories that he had of, of his father growing up or memories of, of things that he did, um, you know, as, as an adolescent. You know, when he says, like, jumping, like, in front of the trains and stuff like that and jumping out, like, just, you know, right as the train came and, like, jumping into the river and, like, all that other stuff. Um, well, like, this movie... It stars Nick Cave and is kind of about Nick Cave. Um, and, it, you know, it's a documentary about him. It's really about his relationship. And I don't, I, I don't want to say his relationship. I'll say it's really about one person's relationship to art. Um, and he talks, you know, you heard like a little snippet of that in the clip that I played, but like as the, the tra- in the trailer, like, um, like the idea of that, like finding... Like he's writing songs to kind of get back in touch with those things that um, move the gears of the heart. Um, And it's like he's trying to reestablish, he's constantly trying to reestablish a connection with himself. And it's like a renewable, like through his songs, like a renewable establishment. And it's a connection not just between, and inevitably it's a connection not just between me and Nick Cave or... Um, you know, Nick Cave and, you know, that guy that lived a couple floors up from him that had all that, you know, religious art or whatever. Um, and then the, the porn that was on the lights and, you know, whatever. It's about, um, a, it's a movie about the re- a relationship between a person and the art that moves them, the art that defines them. Um, and it's, like to break it down to another level, it's about a, like a movie about the things that define us. You know, it's like to quote myself in a song that I wrote before I even saw this movie. It's about like the stuff of existence, the things that make you who you are. And that could be weird locks of hair on a wall. That could be a movie featuring a songwriter that you love. Um, those are that could, or it can be a memory of a of a thing that happened between you and your dad um that's what this is about that's what this movie is about and that's like we've been talking about this list you know we've been making this list this list is a direct expression of everything that i've we've been doing here for the last i don't know subtract 42 from 100 so that's what 58 movies like this is this is like a kind of central moment to that, and it expresses so many things that I've kind of um, 
I've tried to deal with in my own writing and my own thinking and like, and some of the things I like appreciate most, um, in art, like, you know, uh, like the writing of David Shields and Joseph Cornell and, you know, even like DJ shadow who made that great record introducing with his just, it's made just of samples. It's taking other people's stuff and thinking about it and considering it and living with it and figuring out how that stuff fits into your own, um, existence and i think if this is it's you know i'm saying that it's it's very pivotal i think if this movie is not the reason it's 42 and not like 22 or 12 i think is because i think at its core while it is about those things it's also a nick cave advertisement and it's and th- so that's why it fits in this problematic space for me just kind of like wings of desire where new, this movie eventually goes into color where there's some performances of some songs that don't really need to be there. You know what I mean? The performances don't really express anything of the deeper meaning that like this movie contains. Um, but it's 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 really kind of a weirdly amazing, um, subtle but like unexpected film. Go Mario. Yeah, I I, I don't have a lot of feelings about this. Um, <clears throat> but I guess my feelings to this come. I, I'm just I'm not a huge Nick Cave guy. I'm not a, a big music guy. Um, oh, in Jesus Christ! In general, uh, at least you finished it. I still got some of mine left. Um, and the moments in this film I found interesting were some of the, the conversations about his father, mm-hmm. like when he's talking about uh, reading like Nabokov's like Lolita to him and talk about the lyricism. Of that, and, and you know, you get you get a sense of like emotionality there, and a sense of depth, and a sense of of the individual, mm-hmm. and it feeds really well off of that. That you know, that first like twenty minutes, I really enjoy, um, where he talks about like, cannibalizing his wife into his his uh, music, and mm-hmm. like how what music means to him and the expression of what it means to him, and it does then kind of dwell in just the art, like even those conversations with Kylie Minogue or Ray Winstone are just kind of like about the art, mm-hmm. and they're they're surface level to me. And so I guess the question I have for you is um, one more time with feelings, just a better movie, I think for me, one more it's, it, it's just, it's, it's a more personal movie. The music, when the music's done in that is done thematically to fit with the tone. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like a more personal look next to Nick Cave more, maybe about how Nick Cave is going through the emotions. Of, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, this is what, child sons yeah he's in this movie it's the dark-haired kid that he's eating pizza with yeah um did his son commit suicide or what was that no he was on lsd and he fell he fell off like a a a cliff oh okay um but you so you get a more more personal stance next to me you kind of like dwell more into kind of like the the emotional sense of of nick cave in one more time with feeling and every component of that i think works to expand that that theme Mm -hmm. and and to kind of serve that purpose whereas this kind of does end up being more about the artist and in turn then becomes more of like a music documentary so it's weird because i it's it's i think that's 100 percent true but i think what this movie does that that movie doesn't do is that movie doesn't worry so much about being a piece of art that movie doesn't worry so much about commenting on itself through itself Mm, it's it's a um it ends up being even if Skeleton Tree, the record that it's like um, ostensibly promoting, is not about sadness. It's gotten lumped into be because it came out after his son died. 
and has some lyrics that reference things that happened like even though he wrote them before like it's just it like thematically kind of sounds Works, like he's yeah. talking about it um that movie is an expression of of a, a real expression of grief is an expression of one thing this movie is a collection of ideas and like fit together just in kind of the way that like and i love those scenes of nick cave just kind of typing at his desk and you have all those shots of like all the things on his wall it was like kind of, you know Again, this is a very personal thing because it's kind of how I used to live when I was like in my 20s. Like when I still lived at my parents' house and I like had all these bookcases in my room and I created like an extra room inside my room. So like you'd open the door and there would be a bookcase on one wall and then I created a wall of bookcases. So it was like you had to walk down a hallway to get into my room. Um, And then inside my room was literally it just looked like what Nick Cave's office looked like. You know what I mean? It was just stuff that I had collected from like my experience of being of being alive in the world and I just put it all up there and I was like, this is me. Much I'm like this up, really complicated. Much like up here in the Pivotal Film Studio. I mean, the Pivotal Film Studio, sometimes I can't even walk around in here. You know what I mean? <laughs> sometimes it's just, it's like, I'm going to call hoarders and they're going to come over here and you're just going to cry when they try to throw away all There's your There's not a gigantic space in the middle to do any sort of <laughs> yoga you want to do. Well, that's the yoga space. Ladies. Yeah. Um, or the break- oh, that sounds weird. No, I, I meant or the breakdancing space. I'm gonna take that back. Yeah, that one sounded that one sounded off. That's not what I meant. JP, if he JP was bringing the cardboard tonight for our breakdancing, but he yeah. didn't come. He didn't come, so we're not gonna breakdance tonight. Next time, next time. Um, yeah, JP's a good breakdancer. Um, so th- I find this movie more fascinating. I find this movie more of an expression of its ideas than one more time and maybe and maybe because the ideas were more based upon the music that's why i found this much less interesting well it's it's like more time feelings just more of an expression about like what nick cave's going through right but it's i can extrapolate from that like thinking about all art you know what i mean it's like the artist thinking about why he creates art and as like you know someone who's going through his mfa and someone who's like, you know, aspired to be a novelist for a while and like is a songwriter. And ah, this sounds stupid and I will feel ashamed of myself for saying this sentence later tonight. Um, you know, that stuff really means uh, like a fucking lot to me. Um, considering why someone would choose to do this. What, are, what is the purpose of the thing that I'm trying to do? So if you go to like, and I'm not, this is not an advertisement for my, for my music, but if you go to Vietnam slash Viet v-i-e-t dash tom t-o-m dot bandcamp dot com i've got a whole bunch of records up there i've got hundreds of songs up there that i've made why the fuck did i make hundreds of songs i hate i have like a dozen songs in there that are just about how much i hate writing songs and how much i hate that like i feel compelled to put myself out there in this way and to keep making this art but I just, and again, it feels stupid to call it art because I'm nothing. It's like but, me getting back into my short story writing recently and realizing how much I'm angry at myself for doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like, and it was just. There's not even money in it. And I, I was just having a conversation about my wife, with my wife about this last night. And I was like, my whole life is devoted to doing stupid stuff. You know what I mean? Like this, like writing songs like trying to write a novel you know what i mean like in the grand scheme of things it's all stupid but i feel like inside i have to do it something about doing this makes me a better person podcast is or not stupid. even like a better person oh, but something about this makes me a more whole person writing songs makes me more makes me feel more myself you know um 
and essentially I think that's what this movie is trying that's what this movie is about it's about it's about him finding like the wholeness right and the idea of like transformation and the idea of like and that's the leaving... entire conversation with his dad it's like he said like he doesn't really feel his dad until those moments when right. his dad would talk about the lyricality of Nabokov and that brings up more interesting questions like is that the real version of his dad or is that he just decided to see that as the real version you know what I mean yeah exactly or the elevated version or something is it fair to say that there's an elevated version of his dad just because he liked to read books? Um, I don't know. But I just, I every time I watch this movie, I find it more and more fascinating. And I keep trying to find ways. So when I was in, um, when I was at, in college, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I took this, uh, you know, a, a, um, a class about writing essays. And I could write about anything I wanted. So I wrote like a 20-page essay about the idea of my stuff and you know what i called it i call it the stuff of existence because i think it's a great phrase and i love that song that i wrote and i talked well, about I really this thought, i was really hoping you're just gonna call it the stuff the stuff in honor of that great um 1980s horror film starring i can't remember the actor's name now the guy from law and order jerry warbeck no keep going keep which going. guy sam watterson no no uh, early 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 law and order. chris noth early law and order I don't know. <laughs> I feel like that's all the people in early Law and Order. Um, like yeah, Moriarty. Who was he in Law and Order? He was. Uh, he was the first like DA. Oh, um, okay. He was ben- assistant district attorney Benjamin Stone. Gotcha. Gotcha. First gotcha, four gotcha. seasons. Yeah, yeah. My mom had a huge crust on him. <laughs> um. But yeah, since I saw this movie, it's been kind of infiltrating my life here and there. And I wish, again, the the thing I wish he would take out of it is like the extended performance of Jubilee Street, even though Jubilee Street's an amazing song, or like the in studio performance of Higgs Bows and Blues, even though it's a great fucking song. Um, it's it's just not um, those things. Don't hearing the whole song doesn't move me. Um, and it's funny because in the last couple of years, I think we talked about this when I talked about the uh, one more time with feeling, and then he's really kind of reached out to to fans, and he does that red hand files where like you can ask him any question, he'll like essentially write like an essay answer to like the question, and you could just ask him whatever. Like so, I think the new one came out today, and it's like someone's like, "What is shyness?" And he wrote like a you know thousand word piece about like shy being shy. Um, and his performances now have really become like real cathartic experiences, I think, both for him and for like the whole audience. And I think a little bit it has become something Therapeutic about... Therapeutic or... Yeah, because of like his son dying and we all, like all the fans of his, like really feel for him and they, you know, want to help him out, I guess, however they can, which is just going to his concerts and, and cheering for him, expressing their, um, their affection for what he does. But I also think in a lot of ways... Um, well, he's still pretty young. He's 62. I thought he was yeah, better. Yeah, this movie speaks directly to those ideas. You know what I mean? We are we are only a collection of the things around us, our memories, um, the things that mean stuff to us, the people around us. So you're not a you're not a nature guy? You're a nurture guy? Um do I think that we are born terrible? I don't think so. I think from birth there's lots of things that go into making you who you are. But I don't think you come out for no reason being the worst. Or the best. Makes sense. What do you think? Oh, I, I have different thoughts about it that are unrelated to this topic. Are they unrelated? 
No, yeah, because they're they're not all about like, they're not all about goodness of people. Well, I just assume that there aren't any. There's not a lot of goodness in a lot of people, but I think okay, there, Thomas Hobbes. I think there are a lot of people that are really trying to. I'm a Kurt Guardian type of guy. Um, I think there are a lot of people that are really actively trying to figure out whether they know it or not, like who they are as as people. Um, and I think it's one of the things that like I I find um, that's why politics are problematic today because they're linked so. They're, um, I was actually going to end on another political discussion once oh, we're done. So, like, like, I think politics are linked now directly to your personality. So it's impossible for you to feel a different way than you believe. You know what I mean? Mm. And I think that I think that upsets people. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why, if Donald Trump wins, it'll be that because people can't reconcile how they feel versus what they believe. So they feel like this is bad. They believe the opposite of what like Democrats are throwing at them. Quickly before we go into this, what any final thoughts on like Twenty Thousand Days on Earth? No, I mean it's a, it's I think it's free now on Vudu and Tubi um, with with commercials. I don't think this movie lends itself really well to commercials. <laughs> it's it's and it's online maybe maybe yeah, yeah. maybe, maybe you can see actually, it on YouTube. Yeah, because there's a Blu-ray copy of it, so it looks really good and it sounds really good, and you know it'll look. Good Not that TV. you should watch it that way. No, 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 no. Watch it for free on Tubi. Yeah, you're Whatever. not seeing commercials, but you know support support the filmmakers. Or go to your library and take it out from your library. Yeah, exactly. Me. Or get it from Tubi. Yeah, not not YouTube. Not YouTube. Not the really good. Not the really good transfer on YouTube. Um, Speaking of moral dilemmas, and everyone that wants to list here are conversations about films and um, one thirty six twenty seven conversations about our film lists and the films that we saw this week. You can tune out now. Uh, you know, twitter.com, film pivotal, uh, pivotal film podcast, gmail.com, blah, 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 blah. So let's talk about the China thing. I think, I think it's time. What about the China? We can have a fun Hong Kong. No, let's so. Renew is going to, I guess, come to a head, right? Did, did something happen today? No, over the last couple of weeks, it's oh, been okay. kind of building. Yeah. So the, the big one is is the LeBron James comment on... Um, oh, on Daryl Morey being on misinformed. On Daryl Morey, yeah, being misinformed. Yep. And, and, and one of the uh, former Universal Pictures co-chair, uh, Brian Mulligan, he now um, runs an entertainment consulting firm, said that the movie is perfect, talking about Space Jam 2, says the movie is perfect for China, which has more people like playing recreational basketball in our country, and like maybe um, that that this is kind of like the sense of, you know, it would deny LeBron lots of money if it doesn't play there. So maybe this is the reason why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the networks, the DreamWorks, sorry, a Domino film um, being banned in Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines uh, because it depicts um china's nine dash line policy over disputed seas um in in the southeast asia Mm -hmm. um it kind of stands next to it and i kind of think the big one uh for me at least the one that kind of like made me interested in your thoughts and and i I don't know my thoughts are on this right now um maserati has canceled their, their sponsorship of the taiwanese um film uh the golden horse awards okay because they are standing um in line with the uh, one China policy, um, you know, China's decree that yeah, they yeah. have Taiwan and Hong Kong. Do we have thoughts on this? Um, like, 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 what is, is, is this leading to a, a different world in terms of, of how the film industry works? Where we have to kind of like navigate both this nation's kind of uh, uh, 
China, uh, both this nation's problematic, or America's problematic views of foreign countries, and China's problematic Here's views what I would say. of foreign countries. I would say this. I would say... And re-say this as people not extremely well-versed in I'm Asian policy. I'm 100% not. But when I would say this as podcasters, yeah. not well-versed in a lot of things when I was, besides aspect ratios. Yeah. <laughs> what I would say is that um, a lot of the Hong Kong protesters or like people talking about it have said that they, they have referenced a lot um, the American Revolution. Okay. And the American Revolution is interesting because the people outside of like the main combatants you know the the colonies and versus England didn't support America. It wasn't America, but I'll just say America. Uh, the French. No, no, but they didn't support them for no reason. Mm. You know what I mean? There was political ramifications to their support. There was they weren't doing it because they were being good guys. You know what I mean? And I think one of the things that gets lost in all of these discussions is. Every discussion becomes like a personal, and I've, actually this links it really well to what I just said at the end of 20,000 Days on Earth. That's what I was trying to say. I was like, oh, it's yeah, well. Everyone wants to make a personal moral distinction about what is right and what is wrong. And, they, and that includes commenting on what people say about things. You know what I mean? And I don't think it's as... I think there probably is a right and wrong to China versus Hong Kong. You know what I mean? I feel or, like, or Taiwan, as right. in the case of the Golden. I feel like um, those countries. Golden Lion, Golden. And Hong Kong obviously oh, isn't gosh. a country per se. You said Golden Horse? Golden Horse, yes. But if it wants to be a country, I think people should be able to support them regardless. And then people who want to condemn that support should think about like the historical precedent set by some of these other countries in which they weren't supporting because it was awesome. You know what I mean? They weren't supporting because like they went there once and it was really cool. They were supporting for like informed political reasons. If I do this, then that gets me, if I do X, it gets me Y. And there's a conversation that to be had about the, the, the worry of Hong Kong sovereignty in terms of China's ability or not ability, China's willingness of a sovereign Hong Kong to provide them the natural resources they don't have. Sure. Hong Kong doesn't have the ability to kind of create its own energy um, grid. They just don't have the land for it unless you're going to create, I guess, floating power farms. Mm-hmm. Um, Which they could do. I mean, yeah, they could. Uh, uh, I mean, China to, to degree, it has already done that, right? Um, yeah. I'd, like Once again, not screaming yeah. the universe, but in terms of getting in food stock or, or a clean water supply, that would also require... A coordinated effort from neighboring countries, mm-hmm. assuming China is not going to be, you know, outstandingly generous with their boss of Hong Kong or Taiwan. Um, my question comes is just like the uh, foreign national ideas, like like Maserati corporations, like that kind of standing with with already kind of like to me a problematic policy in terms of like especially like a one china policy mm-hmm. um with taiwan like like there's there's do corporate should corporation and i i read both corporations though, are people read both though the are personal answers 
can corporations should corporations be allowed to make these opinions? But they should. I, they obviously have to be in the same way that like corporations have to be able to fire Matt Lauer for like raping people and like. No, that's different though. Because that, that that directly affects the corporate. I mean, yes. We have always have the obligation to but the this does shareholder. Affect, but that's yeah. the same thing that's happening with the NBA. So, like Daryl Morey said that. But it's about, not their actions. I mean, but what, it is. Their, but it is their. So action. their action of, of sponsor. But because China can, is a, could could they just pull the funding for the Golden Horse Award and then not then tweet or say that they pulled the funding because they support and believe in China's one nation policy? Uh, could LeBron say like, oh, we shouldn't talk about. You know, shouldn't uh, morally talk about the things he doesn't know, and maybe we shouldn't discuss. Maybe maybe we shouldn't discuss well, things where we're not one hundred percent sure the of argument, our knowledge. Of. The argument against what LeBron has said is that, like he, what he should have said was that, like um, we had a bunch of people over there. We like a lot of us had our families over there. Daryl Morey put us in a really shitty position. If he wanted to say something, he should have said something after, like the NBA, essentially, um, like four team or two teams or four teams and uh, a bunch of executives left China before putting them in like a really terrible position where they were in the middle of a firestorm for something this guy tweeted. Um, so and that's it, different it, than like fundamentally using your prowess or, or your, 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 your social status uh, corporation or sports star alone to kind of defend an entire ideology that you probably necessarily aren't well versed in yourself. But they're not. I see. That's the thing. I'm. And ma- I think the Maserati thing's like the more, the most kind of problematic. For see, it's, me. it's funny that you mentioned the Kierkegaard versus Hobbes thing because, like, the Hobbesian interpretation of this is that like I just assume everyone's corrupt anyway, and so they're doing it. And the Kierkegaard interpretation is I assume that the corporations are making and the companies and the societies in general are making people corrupt. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, that they're gonna just do it, and I get it, and I, not that I not that I like it, but I understand why they're doing it. They're gonna make the decision that best, um, that bottom works line. best. It's a bottom line. For, it's a bottom line decision. Yeah. It's the same thing the NBA is doing. It's the same thing that like lots of people are doing about everything. And it's the same reason Vincent Mann's doing another Saudi show on Thursday. Right. I mean, it's the same reason. I, I don't know. I mean, it's the same reason why. There's still there's now theaters and again I don't want to go into like a Louis C.K. thing but like Louis C.K. is booking theaters now because he can sell out a theater, and like people are writing articles in every single theater he goes to like should Louis C.K. be doing theaters it's like well uh, two twenty five hundred people like paid forty five dollars to say yes he should be playing theaters you know what I mean and if people are willing to do it if if people if, if it's important to certain people then certain people will say yes to it. So to from a corporate perspective, if Maserati perceives Maserati perceives that they need China to exist, the, the new Maserati, the, the, the third tenor, the fourth yeah. tenor. Yeah, the, no, the new one because that one guy or Pavarotti Pav- died. Pavarotti died in Placido Domingo's you know, sexual oh, assault. Yeah. I don't know what Carreras is doing. I hope he's Was right. it wasn't Bocelli one of them too or is he a different no, one? No, he's a, he's no. just like Andre Bocelli. Um yeah, he's just fine. Um all of Devondre Mitchell. He's a great. He's a great musician. If the NBA perceives that they need China, then China's doing good. If Maserati perceives that they need China, then China's doing all right. Daryl Morey, as a person, doesn't need China, so he can look at these things from a human rights standpoint and say, "Well, they deserve to have what whatever they feel that they deserve to have." But do they need to verbally support the idea? China, China says that they do. Like, isn't it? Yes, China has a, 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 
ostensibly said that the NBA has to support them. So in the same position, if the public opinion for some reason was fully in support of the detainee camps on the border... Maserati should be like, oh, we're pulling funding for the Sundance Film Festival because Robert Redford thinks that, you know, I mean, I don't want to call those those similar things, but the entire detention of people in Hong Kong, um, well, so, so the, the problematic what? kind of policy that's coming out, the, the, the you know, the, the, I don't want to call it habeas corpus because it's not the same thing sure, sure, sure. But the entire lack what would be in america like the complete defiance of a writ of habeas corpus well, here's what i would for s- people who could be possibly political dissidents here's what i would say is that i don't know i don't know who makes military vehicles i don't know who makes military weaponry i'm not sure who makes you know uh whatever that they use in policing the border or they, they use in constructing detention centers or they, they use from driving uh, detainees from the border to whatever. Whatever it is, if, I'm sure Dick Cheney made some money off of it. Right, but what I'm saying is that if one of those companies said, like, I don't like what's going on down at the border, I'm not going to supply you. I'm going to eat whatever is left of this contract in defiance of your... in, in defiance of whatever this legislature that allows you to do this. You know what I mean? Which they could do. They're a big company. No one has done that. Because... They need them. They need that contract. I don't know. Again, we have Sikorsky in Connecticut. I don't know if Sikorsky has anything to do with this. I have family members who work at Sikorsky. But I guarantee you Sikorsky's not going to say there are... I guarantee you Sikorsky's looking at that and saying, like, that. If say they do make something like that, or say some tire manufacturer makes tires that go on military or, like... Um, ice vehicles. Ice vehicles that, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to eat that contract. I'm not going to supply with tires because I disagree with that. I haven't heard, they probably feel in their boardrooms that like, well, that is some human rights violating shit going on down there. But that's a big contract. Yeah. You can have our, you can, you can totally have a toilet. You can have, I don't know what like granola bars that those kids get to eat once a week. Who makes those? But I'm sure they came from somewhere. And so some corporation somewhere is saying, I see it. I hear it. That's a big contract. It's a lot of money. So we don't support it, but we support it. We wish China would do this differently. You keep doing what you got to do, China. That's, I mean, that's the moral of the story. If only there was a way to upend economic systems like that seizing some sort of means of something. Mm. Well, that's, yeah. that has its own problems, oh, Mario. Its own problems. Yeah. <laughs> you know it does. On that note, if you want to talk about seizing the means of production, <laughs> you can tweet us at twitter.com slash film The first email we're going to get is from, like, the Daily Worker. <laughs> Are the Daily Beast even worse? Oh, no. <laughs> um, or you can go to uh, email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and you can look at all the movies on our lists or the beers that we drank or how to subscribe or how to get to the Twitter. Um, but yeah, I mean, next week we're not going to do a list. A lot of movies coming out next week. There's a lot of new movies coming out in our area, so we're going to try to see as many of these Parasites. We got some Jojo rabbits. We got some rabbits infesting parasites. Mm -hmm. Not even parasites infesting rabbits. Rabbits infesting parasites, and it's going to be some pain and glory with that, I guess. Pain and glory. Yeah, we'll see. 
Did you read the Richard Brody review of Pain and Glory? I haven't yet. You should read it. I see the movie and then read it because he has an interesting take on it, which is like different than literally everybody else's take. But it's Richard Brody, so he gets a pass. <laughs> um, but yeah, until, yeah, see one of those movies. Um, and Our Motherless Brooklyn. Or Motherless Brooklyn. The movie that came out this week. Drink a beer. and uh, we But will... not Terminator Dark Fate. No, I don't think anyone's going to go see Terminator Dark do Fate. Do we think so? I don't know. Too many people do. You know why I don't think anyone's going to go see Terminator Dark Fate? Because they, had they don't the opp- want to see a CGI Edward Furlong. They had the opportunity to put Terminator Dark Fate in a lot of theaters. Or a lot of like theaters within these movie theaters, and they haven't. Like, North Haven is not committing a lot of theaters to Terminator Dark Fate. You know what I mean? It's just, I think, one. So they're letting, they're letting like, Motherless Brooklyn and Harriet have as many theaters as Terminator Dark Fate. That says something to me. That Bruce Willis is still a known commodity. That's it. It's all, it's all the Bruce, it's all the Bruce Willis. That Willem Dafoe is going to ride this lighthouse thing all the way to box office glory. Thank you. With a, a five-minute supporting role in, in, in his book. <laughs> Watch him get out there. Uh, but that, did you see that movie? Break a beer? And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>